0: Good morning. So good to be here with you all this morning. I am greatly encouraged as always by each and every one of you, um, especially those of you who are visiting with us. It's really good to have uh, my my nephew, Hunter Campbell, here with us. That is a, a great encouragement to me to have him with us over the next couple of days and get to spend some time with him. It's still not used to calling him a nephew and me an uncle. That still just feels Weird. I have uncles. I'm not supposed to be one. Um, really good to see Melody here with us as well and have her come back and, and visit with us again, and especially the fosters, if you've had, and all of the fosters. If you've had an opportunity to, to meet them, I highly encourage you to get to know them better, especially Jacob. I got to know him over the, uh, camp a few weekends ago and, and just thoroughly enjoyed my time with him. I want to get into our study this morning, jumping back into Mark, uh, where we've been spending quite a bit of time over the last several, uh, several months, really, looking at the Gospel of Mark. And, and we're really getting in towards the end of the book. We're in Mark chapter 15, uh, and what we're seeing, as I was, I was talking with Holly about it uh, the other day, is we're really seeing the true end to the book of Mark. this is Everything is coming to a close. Now yes, there's going to be one more chapter to, to follow this. But Mark is really bookending his, his gospel account here in Mark chapter 15. And, and it's one of my, my, my favorite chapters because we see such a beautiful contrast. Um, and we see a true cost of what it means to stand righteous before God to stand before Him faithfully and to allow His glory to be seen in our lives uh, as we look at the example of Christ. And I also want us as we study and read through here to consider the example of the people around Christ because Mark is painting a picture for us. We're seeing some differences showing up uh, throughout this this account. So we're going to go through the whole chapter of 15, but we're going to move quickly through it because there's a few applications that I want to make towards the end uh, that, that I believe can, can, can help us and benefit us in our walk with Christ today. So in the first 15 verses, we see this picture of Jesus. He's been betrayed. He's been arrested. And now He is standing before Pilate, having endured the Sanhedrin. He is now standing before the uh, Roman procurator Pilate. And so in verse, 15, or in verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, Immediately. In the morning, this is immediately after Peter, who has said, I will not deny you. We talked about that last time. He has denied him. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said, it is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What do you want me to do with him, whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify Him! So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged Him to be crucified. Pilate asks them a question in this account, and it's interesting the question that he's asking them. He says that when, when he is uh, uh, the time has come, it is customary for Pilate to take these men that, are, that have been imprisoned, that are... Facing a a, a punishment and he says, I will release one of them to you. And thinking, possibly, I will set up this Barabbas, this very evil character, someone who has been guilty of murder, someone who has led a rebellion which has caused Rome uh, because of this rebellion in history. Rome has came down hard on the Jews. Certainly they do not have sympathy for this man that's caused them so much trouble and has been so evil. He places Jesus up against that. Here we have the Son of God versus this this very evil, wicked man. And he says, who do you want me to release? But it's interesting, twice in asking that question, he refers to Jesus as the King of the Jews. Do you want me to release Barabbas or the King of the Jews? And when the answer is negative, he says, well, what do you want me to do with this man, the King of the Jews? Twice He goes to them and says this, this phrase referring to Jesus King of the Jews. And in John 19, it reveals that Pilate's attempts to, to, to have Jesus released to them are not just met with what Mark records, with, with no, crucify Him. That's what we want you to do. It's not just that. It's also met with the complete denial that Jesus is our King. In John 19, they refer back to him saying, We have no king except for Caesar. This man is not our king. And even when Pilate tries to understand all of this, when Pilate takes all of this in and he, he, he can't understand why, he asks the question, do you want Barabbas or Jesus? Because he knows the chief priests are envious of Jesus. They're looking at what Jesus has been able to do at the power and the control that He has. And they say, we want that. That's what we had. That's rightfully ours. We want it back. And so He asks the people and the chief priests stir the people up and He says, I don't understand why. I don't understand why you would rather have Barabbas than Jesus. And they don't give Him an answer. You notice we're right through there, they don't explain why. Fanatically, emotionally, they scream out, Crucify Him. That's what we want you to do. You don't need a why. Do what we have asked. And we see the hatred that was welling up in this people's heart for this Jesus of Nazareth. But not only that, we see their true allegiance as well. Their hearts did not lie in God. They didn't truly lie in Caesar either. They lied in themselves. This is what I want. And I don't care the cost. I don't care if we have to sacrifice this man. I don't care if we have to sacrifice our morality. I don't care if we have to make false accusations. If an innocent man has to die, I want the power back. So I don't care the cost. And I want you to compare that with the picture of a silent Christ a sheep a lamb before the slaughter he answers them nothing he has every ability every power to remove himself from this circumstance and time and time again he says nothing he endured all of this he endured their hatred he endured their denial and their rejection of him because he was not allegiant to himself he was allegiant to God. And you see, his attitude, the way that he approaches this persecution, the way that he approaches this suffering, so he doesn't care about the cost either. I don't care what it costs me to be faithful to God. I don't care what it costs me to love even a people like this. And this is what it cost him. Verses 16-32 through 32 continue. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him with a reed on the head with a reed, and spat on him, and bowing the knee they worshiped him, and when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put on his clothes, put his own clothes on him, and led him away, or out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now at the third, it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, The King of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the Scripture was fulfilled which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross." Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said He saved others Himself He cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with Him reviled Him. Verses 16-20 through detail Jesus being mocked, being ridiculed, Beaten in private, away from the eyes of his fellow people amongst the, the nation of Rome, amongst the force, the, the, the power of Rome and the Roman guard. They put purple on him. Purple is the, the, the clothing of kings. Purple is the clothing of royalty. Let's, you, you claim you accuse, are accused of being the king of the Jews. Let's make you look like a king. You need, a, you need a crown. Let's put a crown of thorns placed down upon your head. And you just imagine the pain and the humiliation. And they spit on Him and beat Him and bow a knee and, and, and worship Him. And it's, it's gross. And it's degrading. And it's only the beginning. Because after putting his clothes back on him, they parade him through town for everyone to see, this is what it looks like to try to make yourself a king. This is what it looks like to stand against us. And he is in such pain and he is so weak from the ordeal, that as he carries that cross beam that later he will be affixed to, that he will be... Uh, nailed to and sacrificed upon, crucified upon, he can't even bear the weight of it. Someone has to help him. Simon has to to help him carry this. And when he reaches the place of his death and he is affixed to the cross, he refuses the the wine and the myrrh combination that was given to him. Many have suggested this this is very likely an anesthesia. Something to kind of help prolong this, not because we care about your, your suffering, we want you to suffer, but we want you to suffer as long as possible. Jesus says, I don't need that. He doesn't, he doesn't take it. He refuses it. And so then they begin to cast lots for his garments, right in front of him. The very clothes that he had, had, had just been wearing now, they're saying, I'm, I want that, and I want this, and, and I'll give this much, we're going to, let's see who's going to get it. Let's, let's take, draw straws. And they place a sign above him with the accusation. The only thing they've truly got right, the king is here. Beside him are two two thieves, and all of this is going on. And he's continually being mocked and blasphemed. Claim to be the son of God, do something about it. Save yourself, prove it to us. And during all this time, we again see the picture that Jesus had power, He had abilities, He had had the right to do something about all of this. But yet again, there is a cost that is being paid. And that cost continues to be carried out in the next sections as He is crucified and dies on that cross. Continue with me reading in verses 33-41. through 41. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And in, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a ring, and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Siloam, who also followed with him, ministering, uh, ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. One very fascinating thing to me that occurs in this account of Jesus and His last moments on the cross is His words that He spoke. And Mark doesn't record everything that other Gospel writers recorded. He leaves actually a lot of sayings from the cross out. But in verse 34, he records one of the last phrases uttered by Christ before crying out and dying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1, begins the exact same way. Psalm 22, and verse 1, a psalm written by David in a time of great trouble and trial, begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words Of my groaning. This has led many to question and to argue, possibly endlessly, was Jesus actually forsaken on the cross? Did God turn His back on him? Did God walk away from him? Did God refuse to listen to him on the cross? And when we ask that question, and when we, when we argue and fight over that question, I believe we have thoroughly missed the point of what Jesus is saying here. Because I don't have a clue if He was actually forsaken or not. I just don't know whether He was actually forsaken by God But I do know this. I do know that he felt the full wrath of a righteous God being poured out on him as he bore our sins. Not the sins uh, that he he had committed. The sins that the people around him, the sins that I have committed. He is bearing the cost of that. The wrath of God. And does that make him a sinner? Of course not. No. No. We know from from passages uh, such as in Hebrews 4 that we have a high priest who is tempted in all things. He dealt with every problem that we deal with today, but he was tempted and was without sin. He was righteous. He was holy. He was pure. He was not a sinner. But he took my sins on the cross and carried them up before a God that I couldn't stand, I couldn't even dream of ever facing. And did that make God turn His face away for a moment? I don't know. But I do know this. At the very core of Jesus, He is saying in quoting Psalms 22, it feels like you're not here with me anymore. That's what David is saying in Psalms 22, verse 1. God, it feels like you've left me. It feels like you've abandoned me. But I want you to turn over to verse 24. Psalm twenty two twenty four. 24, listen to how the, he begins wrapping this psalm up. He says, we'll start in verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren. Again, David talking about God. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him. All you his offspring of Israel. Why? Verse 24, for He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him... He heard. David's saying, it feels like I'm going through this on my own. But as he goes around this problem, as he explores it, he realizes I'm not away from God. God has not hidden Himself from me. And what that ultimately looks like then is vindication. What David is saying is, while I don't understand why I'm enduring this, I don't understand how this is happening to me. And it feels like God has just left me. I know that He's still there. I know that He still hears. And I know that He will be the one that brings vengeance. He will be the one that vindicates. That takes the innocent. And in the context of Psalm 22, David is innocent of what he's he's enduring. Jesus was innocent on the cross and G- God has the ability to take the innocent and make them shown innocent and vindicated. And those who have, those who have stood against them, those who have reviled the innocent, those who have attacked and, and, and taken advantage of the poor, He's saying He can do something about that too. That's the picture we see here. Vindication. Is coming when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, I have no doubt in my mind he felt the full wrath of God. Every picture of Christ after the resurrection confirms that as he is resurrected and he comes, how does he show to his disciples that it is him? He says, Feel the scars, feel the holes in my, this, my, my side where it was riven, come and see. And when we read through the book of Revelation and that vision given to John over and over again, the Son of Man is pictured as a lamb slaughtered, wearing clothing dripping in blood. Jesus is forever changed by what He did for us. He feels the effects of that and He cries out to God, but He's also telling the people around Him, this isn't the end. Vindication is coming, and vindication begins immediately. We remember as we read, these men, they try to offer him the sour wine. They say, let's see see what all this means. Let's see where this is headed to. And he breathes his last, and the veil of the temple is ripped, torn from top to bottom. And this centurion of all people, this Roman centurion, sees that he breathes his last, Sees that he cries out and breathes his last. Looks, He's looking at everything that's going on and he says, truly, this was the Son of God that we have just crucified. Now, I, I hope, I hope that that whole picture of the, the veil ripping, the centurion confessing, I hope that sounds familiar to us. Because I said, this is the bookend. This is Mark bringing to a close his gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is saying, I'm here to tell you the good news of that Jesus of Nazareth. He was the Christ, the Son of God. That is, that is actually a, the, the words that he uses there. It's Roman words to say he's the king. And I'm going to tell you about him. And where does he start? He starts in chapter 9. With Jesus' baptism. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, He saw the heavens parting. That word parting there is the exact same Greek word that is used for the veil being parted, being torn. The heavens parted, the spirit of the dove Uh, There's the Spirit descending upon Him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Gospel of Mark opens with the picture of Jesus' baptism, with the heavens tearing open, and a voice confessing, This is the Son of God. And He bookends it here in Mark 15. With Jesus' baptism into death, with the veil between the holy place and man the separation between man and God, tearing open and the confession by a Gentile, no less, this was the Son of God. Vindication is coming. Jesus has not been destroyed. Jesus has been victorious. The temple, yes, that's finished. The temple and the ways of the temple, they're done. But the kingdom just got established. And it's opened a way for mankind, and not just Jew anymore, it's opened a way for all mankind, anyone, to realize who Jesus is, come to Him with the confession that He is the Son of God, and I need to follow Him and be able to have a relationship with His Father. The veil being torn shows God is no longer isolated away from His people. But through the death of Christ, all men can come before Him now. And then we see verses 42 through 47. When evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoned the centurion and asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought the fine linen then he brought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. The whole scene of Mark chapter 15 of the accusation of Christ, the punishment and crucifixion of Christ ends with his burial. A brief conversation between Pilate and a hasty burial by this man, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, I want you to notice something about Joseph. Joseph is a, 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 a council member. And so he is going to Pilate and he is doing these things likely at a great cost to himself because Pilate's just put this man to death. And this man has been put to death in part because of his claims of being king when there is only one king in Rome, Caesar. But I want you to think about some other things about him. Luke describes him as a good and just man. John describes him as a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. The request wasn't just dangerous, it had potential cost to him. It had personal cost to him. He may lose his position as a council member. He may physically suffer because he's a supporter of this Jesus of Nazareth. But he still goes. And he has that conversation, despite the cost. And I want you to notice Pilate's surprise as well. Pilate is amazed at the fact that Jesus is already dead. you ever notice that? He marveled. And then he summons a centurion and says, Go make sure. Prove it to me. Have you seen this? You tell me about it. What have you seen in this crucifixion? He says, He asked him, Has he been dead for some time? And when he found out, then he granted the body. You know, some people say, Well, how do we really know Jesus died? How do we really know that he wasn't just in, in some sort of coma from all the pain that he endured? They wanted to be sure. They wanted to know, the authorities, the governing authorities wanted to know, is he dead? Multiple people consu- uh, uh, confirm the death of Christ before he's taken down off the cross. He is dead. But you also think about the fact that Pilate goes, How? It's not been long enough. This is mere hours after being crucified. People survived days, sometimes even weeks, on the cross. Because the cross didn't kill you. You died from suffocation. The cross was painful. The cross was described as, as disgusting, the most deplorable ways to execute someone in that day by the people of that day. But what the cross did was it, it humiliated you. It was like the stockades, it was placed somewhere where people would walk by and be able to shake their finger at you. You got what you deserved. The cross brought excruciating pain, but in that pain, it brought weakness. And as the body slumped, and the lungs began to strain for air, people who are being crucified suffocated to death. And thus we think about Jesus crying out. All of His strength that's left to get one last breath of air out and then he died. Pilate says, This is just ours. How did this happen? How has it been so quickly? And maybe it's because of the scourging that he received. Maybe it's because of all of the torment that he received and all of the punishment that came prior to his crucifixion. But it draws my mind back to a phrase that he said in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. Jesus said, it's my life, and I lay it down. And Jesus laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. We don't see a picture of Christ holding on with everything he has to this life. He wasn't cheated out of it. It wasn't stolen from him. It wasn't forced from his fingers. He gave it. He gave his life to die. And that's remarkable to me because that's the cost of righteousness. I want you to compare a people fueled, fueled and motivated by sin. They were seeking out this is our desire, this is what we want, and we don't care what it costs. And where did that lead? It led to defeat. In one regard, we find that it leads to the defeat of the power of Satan. Satan is defeated. He is destroyed with his ability to separate people from God without any hope. It's being defeated right here in Christ and His sacrifice. The power of death is being defeated right here in Christ and His sacrifice. The Jewish religion is being defeated right here in Christ and His sacrifice. And then in 70 AD, we're going to see Rome pour out wrath on them a judgment that is prophesied by God over and over again thanks in large part to their unfaithfulness which is ultimately highlighted by killing the son of the true king of Israel their hate their sin their greed their lust for power that's what they were fueled and motivated by and it led to defeat but in contrast that you have Christ. Christ is fueled. He is motivated by love. Love to seek out the fulfillment not of His desires. You remember in the garden, He prays, God, if there's some way this cup can pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but Yours. I love God's will. I want God's will to be fulfilled, even if it costs me mine. That attitude leads to victory. It leads to vindication. Right now, he is dead. He's buried in a rich man's tomb. But as we'll see in coming studies, very soon, that's going to be made evident in his resurrection. And that's going to be made finally evident, fully in heaven, when every enemy has made his footstool and every knee bows. I think of the knees of those men who bowed before him in the Roman halls, mockingly. I think of all the people throughout history who have denied or who have confessed but not confessed in truth. Not really cared for Christ. All mankind is going to bow before the name of Jesus Christ in the day of judgment. Vindication is coming. Vindication fully will happen. There are several things that I want us to take away from this account. And there are several things that we can. Especially when we start pulling in all the Old Testament references that clearly this didn't just happen. It wasn't just an afterthought. People say, well, well, God came to establish the kingdom and the Jews defeated that purpose and so He established the church. No! The Old Testament is filled with evidence that this was God's plan from the very beginning. There's so many lessons we can learn from that, but that's not what Mark's driving at. Now, how many times did he, quote, did, did, did he go back to show that? Very few. Mark has a purpose involved with his whole account. From the very beginning, his gospel of the Son of God is a gospel of suffering in view of glory. Suffering brings glory. Christ chose faithfulness to God even to the point of the cross over top of his own desires to be spared that experience he says I will suffer for you God I will suffer for obedience I will suffer for these people and his suffering shows his allegiance to the father he was willing to be humiliated to show his allegiance to the father he was willing to die to show his allegiance to the father and because of all this he receives vindication but also think about what God is able to do God is able to to be highlighted His glory, His mercy, His healing, His redemptive power all in the suffering of Christ. So I want you to leave today with this thought. Am I giving room in my life for the glory of God, for His vindication to be highlighted by my suffering? If my desires, if my desires to win out, if my desires to get my way, if my desires to be, this is what I want, this is how I want to do it, this is what I want to do, if that wins out over the fulfillment of God's will, that's going to have to take a back seat because I've got my own intentions. But I'm going to tell you the answer to that question is no. I am not leaving room in my life. If I have a lust if I have a greed if I have a hateful thought in my heart it causes sin in my life yes but I still want that if that describes me if I want money so bad that I don't care what it costs me to get it if I want a feeling of gratification so bad that I don't care what it costs me to get it then I'm a lot more like those Jews who shouted out crucify him crucify him we don't have a king but Caesar and again what they're really saying is we don't have a king but me I'm my own king the example of Christ is to follow in suffering. Think back to his tears that fell like drops of blood in the garden. As he, he didn't scream and shout for his way, he quietly prayed for God's will to be fulfilled. If my attempts to attain a comfortable life choke out room for God's glory, then again, the answer to that question is no. When you think about the example of Jesus laying down his life, And you know what? We may be called to lay down our lives too. As Christians, as followers of Christ, there may come a time when we need to lay down our lives. Now, this is certainly more accurate for the Christians of that day who on a regular basis had the opportunity to do that. Stoned, fed to the the animals, treated as if they were a circus. Thankfully, and I thank God for this often, We live in a society that generally condemns the putting to death of people because of their beliefs. But that's always always a possibility that that could change. We're not guaranteed that. And we need to choose to lay down our life. And I want to tell you something. If we can't choose to lay down our life for the small things, how are we ever going to choose to lay down our lives physically for Christ if it came to that? On a regular basis, we need to be choosing that I'm going to die to desires of comfort if those, di- if those desires separate me from the will of God. If those desires stand in contrast to the will of God. You know, I am far more comfortable. I told some of you this morning, I woke up in Winchester this morning, I would have been a lot more comfortable pulling those covers back up over my head and sleeping for about another day I mean, I would have been so much more comfortable had I done that. I'm a lot more comfortable. I'm a lot more comfortable with just going hiking, reading a book, watching a movie, then going to talk to someone who is struggling with sin, then sharing with someone who has lost a loved one and is is weeping and crying. And I don't want to be... That's not comfortable. There's so many things that we are called to do. And if I choose my comfort over that, over serving God, then where, where does His glory shine in my life? Where do I ever give an opportunity for His love to reflect out of me? But if I do suffer, if I do choose to suffer, even in these small ways, like choosing to be at an assembly of God, like choosing to give room in my heart for somebody else. We talked about selfishness, selflessness, courtesy this morning. When I choose these things, that's suffering. No, it's not suffering like what they're enduring here. But in small ways, it's suffering. And when I'll choose that, I can't boast in it. I can't boast that I was there every Sunday morning, God. Did you see what I did this, God? I can't boast in that. But others can boast in Him. Others can see Him. His glory, His love, His mercy, His compassion. If it can be highlighted in our lives then He can be glorified. Repeatedly, Christ chose. That is going to define me. I will choose God over myself. And you know when He did that, He chose you over Himself. He suffered and He died so God could be glorified, so He could be vindicated, so God's mercy and God's love could spread out for what end? So that you could seek it and you could find it. In light of that, What will you choose today? I encourage you to choose suffering. It's a brief time that we have on this life. And the suffering that we choose, we talked about this in class this morning as well, more and more often as we choose that suffering, the more and more we begin to realize it's a blessing. But I also ask you to consider the fact that it's also a cost. It costs you something to follow God, to serve Him. Jesus said that if you would follow after me, to pick up your cross and follow me. Everything that we talked about this morning, the things that he endured, that's where his mind was looking forward to when he made that statement. He's inviting us to suffer and not to be afraid, and not to try and get out of it in some way, but to allow God's glory and mercy to be highlighted in our lives by trusting in Him and following Him wherever He may lead us. If we can assist you this morning in beginning that walk, in coming to Him in obedience to receive from His sacrifice the forgiveness of sins by submitting to Him as the King, That is our desire. We would love to talk with you about that more. If there's something we can do to help you in that walk that you've maybe already started, won't you please come forward and let it be known as we stand and as we sing.